Welcome back to the Kenny Chesser Podcast. I am your host, Kenny Chesser, and I am back at home recording in studio and using our old equipment, and it might have lesser quality since my boy, Sean, ain't running the, the soundboard back there, but we're, we'll get through it, I promise you. Uh, I've had a lot of fun over the last month. It's been crazy busy. Uh, we've had um, our youth camp at our church, which had about two weeks of intense work leading up to it. Um, then I preached a camp, and then we had our general conference thrown in there. Uh, we had our anniversary, uh, which we took a special trip for that. And so it's just been constant one trip after another, which I wouldn't have it any other way. I love youth camp season. It's one of my favorite times of, of the year. And so we are resuming some semblance of normalcy at this point, and I'm hoping to get back onto our recording and posting schedule. We've been averaging about two episodes a week since the beginning of the year, um, and so we're, we're hoping to get back into that mode. Um, thank you for your patience. Thank you for those of you that have reached out and said that you missed the podcast and was looking for weekly episodes. Thank you again um, for that, for being faithful listeners. Today, we're going to start, I guess it would be a, considered a series, um, we're going to be talking about the the origins of what I feel uh, has been the cultural shift in America, uh, on a, in a broader terms, just Western culture. Uh, what's been going on with it, and what how how this started? Um, it actually goes back way before. Um, the 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 revolutionary era era of the 60s um i think it started way before then so we're going to talk about some of the historical origins of what we're seeing right now fleshed out not just in our streets but in our universities and um our media and we're going to talk about it and then we're, we'll try to look at it through a biblical lens as well, and I think it's going to be exciting. Uh, if you uh, are interested in this stuff as I am, I think I think you are going to enjoy it. And if you aren't interested at all, maybe I can give you some information that you possibly didn't have before. Either way, it should be a good time. Let's buckle up and get to work. I don't know. It seems to me that he shouldn't be saying that. Well, what is it that you want him to say? Shut him down. A few weeks ago, while in the middle of all of the camps and conferences and all these other things that I mentioned in the show opening, I was tasked to teach a uh, new class at our church. We've been doing something very different over the last few years in which we break up our adult classes into four classes. And we give them the opportunity to select uh, every semester. It's a 13-week uh, semester uh, based on the uh, quarterlies put out by Word of Flame from the PPH. And we, we have that class being taught. But we also usually offer at least two, three, sometimes four different options uh, depending on how many people we have pre-registered uh, in, in the registration um, season of different classes, anything ranging from a, a study in the Word of God is for, a, for a specific book for that semester uh, to a discipleship class, whether it be just Apostolic Doctrine 101 type stuff or uh, some stuff I've taught, um, some discipleship developed by my good friend, Brother Jonathan Vasquez. Um, this semester, we're doing a discipleship uh, series or uh, course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, taught by Brother Corey, and it's it's going really, really well. Well, when we were planning the summer semester uh, several months ago, um, someone on our staff mentioned that we should address what's going on um, in our country uh, as far as uh, the cultural uh, revolution that we're experiencing, 
and or have have experienced maybe it would be better uh, described that way possibly um give a, a biblical answer or prescription and so they kind of looked at me <laughs> uh they they did you know they they knew that i i i love talking about this stuff and and, and keeping up with this stuff i'm uh, by far i'm not an expert but i do follow um cultural events and trends to trying to figure out exactly where the country's headed uh, a lot of times that's because of, uh, of just the political aspect of of my interests i like uh political um discourse and, and following politics kind of on a local and national level. Um, but anyway, long story short, they asked me to do this. And so I didn't have any uh, curriculum. I decided to start developing my own. And so I, I've got several books that uh, I started reading at that point um, and, and have kind of been, I won't, I'm not winging it, but kind of been as I go, um, I'd already, you know, built up the lessons of what I wanted to teach early on. Um, and we're, 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 we've got a direction that we're heading. And so I thought it'd be good for this podcast to maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, and, uh, I've, I've spoke on these issues on the podcast before, um, but not really with armed with what I've, um, been doing lately in class, um, more of just kind of hot takes of what I was thinking, <laughs> uh, on those days. And, uh, again, it's not that it's not informed, but, um, when you have to teach it, uh, you dig down a little bit deeper uh, into the the roots and the origins. And so these are some of the things that I found. Um, some of the books that I that I ordered, if you're interested, um, I ordered two books by Rob uh, Dreyer, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, the first is The Benedict Option, and the other is Live Not by Lies, which I believe Live Not by Lies is a pull, pulled quote from... Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which I've read volume one, and I, I really uh, thought that was a great book. It was a terrible book, but I thought it was a great book in that it described with great detail, graphic detail even, um, the atrocities that was committed um, by Stalin and those um, in power at the time. Um, so great as in well-written, terrible as in what the, the contents. Um, and... So you have I've got those two books, and I got another book by Melvin Tinker. It's called That Hideous Strength, which was taken from a C.S. Lewis novel, I believe, is the last in a trilogy of it's like a science fiction type uh, story. I haven't read those by Lewis, but I got a little uh, working knowledge of it now after reading this book because it, he he borrows from some of the imagery there, and. Um, so that's kind of what I'm pulling from. I've got other books that are ordered uh, as well to help feed this. Uh, one by uh, Vadi Bakum. Um, and, uh, I might be saying that wrong, uh, wrong. Uh, it's very, uh, uh, it's highly likely that I will pronounce names wrong here. Um, uh, I don't, uh, watch a lot of, uh, television, uh, that would have things pronounced to me. It's <laughs> most of that I do. I read and, uh, and I, I realize like, you know what? I might be pronouncing these wrong in my head. So, uh, if that's the case, I apologize to the, all you fans out there of the, of the works that I'm trashing, uh, with my mispronunciation, but let's getting into the, uh, the subject and the contents today, what we want to be talking about. I started with the lessons with just the, the idea of viewing yourself and others, um, through power dynamics. Um, the idea that you are a part of either a group that is oppressed or a group that is oppressor. And that is the most important and, and, and identifying feature of your life. And so the idea goes all the way back, um, into the late 
19th century, I want to say, uh, get my, uh, the, the dates wrong here a little bit. I, 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 I apologize for that, but we're going to start way back and talk about the, uh, philosophy that kind of drove these movements that we're experiencing. Um, I've got some object- objectives for my class. I think they, uh, are, are pointed, uh, I'll read them sometimes. I think, man, maybe that's too much like a, a word salad, but I was trying to uh, describe, uh, and articulate what the class was going to be covering and, and the object objectives. So basically, here's here's what I've got. We're supposed to cover the philosophical, political, and religious doctrines that inform this present moment of history. So we're going to talk about the things that people believe, um, whether it be philosophical, whether it be religious, whether it be political, and the melding of some of those. Some of them are uh, uh, Politically religious and religiously political. Um, I've, I've covered that early. I think in my first podcast ever, I talked about that that phenomenon. Uh, the other thing is we're going to talk about is the we're the the biblical prescriptions for what's going on in society, what's wrong with society, societal ills, and then the last thing, uh, objective wise, is to discuss the practical actions that the church and the individual Christian can take um, to affect positive change in our world. So we diagnose the problem. We figure out where it come from. Uh, we talk about what the Bible uh, has to say about that, um, and how we can make an impact. That's the that's the goal of my class uh, so far. Uh, it's not to dunk on liberals. It's not to dunk on uh, anybody with, with with an education, uh, you know, in some type of uh, critical theory curriculum, whether it be you know gender studies or uh, or whatever. Um, that's not the that's not the point. I actually touched on a lot of that uh, this past Sunday. I was like, we're not we're not trying to learn information to that. Well, we could throw bombs at the other side. We're trying to understand their position, and we want to understand it uh, in a way that is reflective of what they actually believe, not some straw man. But we want to steel man their argument, uh, and then we want to talk about you know what the Bible says about their arguments. You know where where, where they got it wrong, uh, where we feel like the Bible is right. Um, and, and then what we can do, uh, to affect that societal change, if there's anything, um, I, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, uh, a little bit, uh, on my second week, I, uh, I talked about the righteousness of a nation. Uh, we pulled from Proverbs, I think Proverbs 14, we used the whole, uh, chapter and we just went through and, uh, almost line by line. I didn't have enough time to get into every verse in that chapter, but we went through and talked about, uh, leading up to when the, the writer says, uh, it's righteousness that exalts a nation. Um, what was the thought process leading up to that? Sometimes we gather Proverbs as spiritual uh, and uh, practical maxims that can be applied. And if we just take, you know, just take this proverb here, and um, and we, the idea was to back up, look at the whole picture of, of, of a large swath of that scripture, and it, a lot of it connected um, to about uh, about the righteousness of a nation and 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 what can go wrong uh, in a society and I, I thought it was really really good as far as that chapter not my teaching but my, that chapter um, and really appropriate for our present uh, moment in in the world okay so let's get into the history a little bit so there was a guy um, and again I'm I'm going to uh, do my best with these pronunciations. Uh, his name was uh, Hegel, and he was a German philosopher. Uh, and this is something he said in his book, Phenomenology of the Spirit. And this is um, this is important philosophically. When some philosophers come out and they make statements or they write books, uh, which when it you know create uh, contains their statements, um, and it kind of shifts the way a whole another generation will think about things. And so this is one of those. Um, 
lightning moments. Uh, and this is what Hegel said in his book, Phenomenology of the Spirit. Self-consciousness exists in and for itself when and by the fact that it so exists for one another. That is, it exists only to be acknowledged. So Hegel has this idea that your consciousness, your being, um, is fleshed out by your relationships to someone else. It exists for and by the fact that it is in relation with some, some someone else, for for another. And it exists only when it's acknowledged. Now, this was a game changer um, for uh, philosophy at the, in that day. It's basically saying that you exist in in as much as you relate to someone, that without that relation, without that acknowledgement of who you are, then are you are you that? You know, can you imagine if you were the only person conscious of your status um, as far as like you know, think of it in the animal kingdom. You know, that's that's the main thing that separates us uh, from. Um, from those beasts, it, well, I say I say that. I mean, when I'm talking uh, how we feel about the divine, you know, imago day. What separates us? Well, it was the breath of God. You know, that man became a living soul. It's that consciousness. It's that awareness. You know, and you can break that into you know numerous uh, points. You know, you can say, well, we are aware of the future. We're conscious of of our own mortality. Yes, all those things. But we're also conscious of how we relate to one another. Um, I don't know in the animal kingdom if there's such uh, familial responsibility. Obviously, there are some pack animals, herd animals, that that seemingly um, will relate and and take care of one another. But I don't think there's anything that... uh, like what we, what we, how we exist as, as, as humans and how we, uh, care for and, and, and take care of our own. And so he, Hegel comes along and he says, this is the, this is, this is how we exist, uh, in relation with one another. And when we're being acknowledged, that's our, that's our self-consciousness. It's, it's how we manifest, uh, to one another. Uh, I am not the person I would be, um, you know, if I didn't have those relationships, if I wasn't Greg Chester's son or Teresa Chester's son or um, Misty Chester's husband or Julian Chester's father, you know, and, and so on and so forth. It, it's, it's, that's who I am. That's how I exist. Um, and this is, I'm not saying he's right. I'm just saying this was the, the, uh, a seismic shift in philosophy. And you say, well, that, that sounds okay. Well, yeah. It's not a it's not a it's not a bad take in, in the world of takes and ha- as far as takes go. Well, he had a student. Now his student's he's very popular. You might have heard of him. His name was Karl Marx, and Marx takes this thinking and he kind of he kind of turns it upside down and he goes, okay, all right, I'll take that and say we exist in a world that is defined by power dynamics. And so if we're basing our identity on our relationships or how we, um, how we acknowledge one another, then I want to separate and, and say this is the two groups or the two tribes of people in this world. And that is the proletarian and the uh, bourgeoisie. Uh, or Z, uh, I think is how they say it uh, in, in, in European uh, slang. And so what, what is the, the proletarian? Well, the proletarian is those that does not have things. Um, and the bourgeoisie, or Z, is those that have things. And so basically, Marx comes along, and, and Engels, um, and they say, okay, it's the haves and the have-nots. 
that's 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 who you are. You're either a have or you're a have not. Now, the critique that that Marx and Engels makes, we're not saying that it's wrong in in as much as there was a great divide between the haves and the have nots. That's not something that's new. Anybody that's making that assessment, um, you can you can go even to scripture and you'll see the, the financial principles in this world that that it seemingly bears out in every economic system to much is is given you know they're going to what whoever has much shall be given more and those that that have less they'll get less and less and less it's almost like this economic um principle that's embedded in society that 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 you will grow exponentially with more and with less, it seems like you cycle out of control. Now, I'm saying that's that's in every economy, that's what has to happen. They're saying the generals. That's generally how it happens. And so Marx and Engels comes and says, okay, these are these are how we manifest in the world. You're either this or that. And they prophesy a revolution that, that's going to come where every worker in the world will rise up and overthrow the oppressors that in their in their worldview that you are either the oppressor economically or you are the oppressed economically. Now understand that this is this is the 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 origins of Marxism. Karl Marx obviously lends his names to this this movement, and it's economic in nature. It has nothing to do with all the things that we think of now when we think of Marxism, and it's because there's a neo-Marxism or a new Marxism that is prevalent uh, in today's society, but Marx and uh, Engels in their Communist Manifesto, it's a it's an economic uh, document. I'm sure that they got in. I, I've never read completely. I've read excerpts from the Communist Manifesto, but I've never read it completely. Um, I'm sure they, they touch on other parts of society, but it is in an it's an economic uh, philosophy. And so one of the things that I think this is attributed to Engels, not Marx, but it's in the Communist Manifesto. One of the things that they said was the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Workers of the world unite. That is the, the famous phrase from that book. And so it's like, look, man, we're already suffering. We're already being oppressed. Let's rise up in revolution. We're talking about a violent re revolution. We're not talking about a cultural revolution. Let's rise up. All we have to lose is our chains. We're not going to, you know, it's not, we're not going to suffer anymore, but we could win our freedom. We got the world to win. And so this was, this was the idea that Marx built on from Hegel is we relate to one another and our self-consciousness exists as we relate to one another. And he goes, okay, well then I see the power dynamics. I immediately start seeing everything in, in, in a power dynamic. It's, it's, is this person hurting me or am I hurting someone else? And that's it. Those are your options. There's really no uh, neutral playing fields. And so the question then becomes is like, okay, well, are, are there oppressed people? Is there oppression in the world? Uh, in any society, he was looking at it in European society when they had, uh, um, I'm trying to think exactly what it was called. I know they called them serfs. There was a, there was an economic system that, um, that existed there and I can't quite put my finger on it. I know that it's in my notes somewhere. Um, but basically is it wasn't slavery like we had in America, like chattel slavery. It was people that lived on the land were basically not chained physically, but they, they lived on the land. They were, they were servants of that land and whatever nobility owned that land, owned that land. And they took care of that land. I think it was called, uh, I think they were called serfs. 
Um, and that and that was that system. It's like a cast. Maybe it was a cast system. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but anyway. And so what they're, they're describing is, is absolutely, is, is it oppression? Yes. Are there oppressed people? Yes. So the question becomes then, okay, not is it going on. We know the Bible talks about poor people. We know specifically economically poor people, not just the poor in spirit, but poor people that, that, that don't have, you know, uh, financial um, assistance. So the question is not, is, are they telling the truth? Is it, is it their, is their cure for the economic downturn in some people's life is is that is that the answer we're not we're not debating on whether there's oppression or or oppressors we're we're debating and we're we're still on marx here we're not talking about the the, the neo marxists we're talking still on marx is that is that the is that the cure is it to seize the means of production is it is it is the government the answer is the government um, to take over the you know central planning of the economy uh, which is a, is a tenet of, of socialism, communism, um, that they, they they take over the means of production, they seize the means of production, they de-incentivize um, production in that way. Um, uh, they, you know, violently uh, dispose of the oppressors and the oppressors, whoever is at, at the day, whoever has the power, you know, they're, they're oppressors. You can't have power without being oppressive. So obviously your power is ill-gotten. Power is a zero-sum game to these people. And so the question is not do, do does power dynamics exist or do oppression exist? It's what do we do about it? Well, what was Marx's solution? Well, Marx's solution was written in the Communist Manifesto, and it says the last capitalist we hang shall be the one who sold us the rope. And so their goal was a violent overthrow of oppressors. To to literally put to death, and 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 so this is what Marx prophesied. Uh, this is what happens in Russia. If you know anything about world history, you'll know at the closing uh, months, years of the First World War, there was a violent uprising in Russia, in which the uh, the Tsar and his family, Nicholas, uh, were brutally murdered, and uh, all the uh, nobles, all the um, uh, the bourgeoisie, uh, so to speak, or the bourgeoisie, uh, were were either they either escaped or they were murdered, um, and then so this is you know they obviously you know this is a big success for for communists and the uh, the Bolsheviks, um, but if you if you read the history you you understand that the economic system that was replaced, you know that they replaced you know capitalism with quote unquote capitalism, um, was devastating. Uh, to the tune of millions, hundreds of millions of dead Russians, and you think, okay, you you would think that anybody with with uh, the base basic knowledge of world history could look at that and say, man, that system failed miserably. And I'm trying to remember. There's somebody said recently, might have been in the '90s or uh, I can't remember. I should have looked that up before the show today. But basically, said the the only people that could that could look at communism or socialism as a um, a viable option, they have to be intellectual. <laughs> There's nobody that could, with common sense, could look at it and say, "Look at the look at look at how how bad it failed." It wasn't just like a near miss. We're talking hundreds of millions dead due to these these uh, policies, the, this philosophy. And so, again, the question is, what what do you do about the poor? 
we know that it's there. We know that there's economic troubles. What do you do? This is what Jesus said, and and, and this is probably one of the more abused quotes of Jesus. So I'm going to try to qualify it because when you hear it, there's, there's a little bit of recall. I understand. Um, this is what Jesus says. He says, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Now, People have said this and said, "Man, what a what a heartless thing to say." And that's not that's not that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually speaking an eternal truth that some of us don't want to hear, and that is that there is an economic disparity that will never be solved. Now, number one, let me say this: that is not an excuse not to help. Jesus says, "You can help them anytime you want." And you can read the scripture over and over and over. And I can compile, you know, you, there's entire books compiled on the, the idea that the church should be helping the poor. And here's the thing, the church does that in practice. You don't look at it and say, well, the church don't practice what it preaches. Look, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, there's hospitals, orphanages, shelters. I mean, the most that I see in the communities that I've lived in, the people that are making the most positive uh, impact in these communities is the church, is a religious group. It's not, it's not the government. The government institutions for the poor are, 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 I'm not saying that they're not helpful at all. I'm saying that they're usually miserably run and they, they don't get the results promised. We were, um, we lived in Baton Rouge for five years and there were there were several hospitals there in Baton Rouge. It's a large uh, metro area, and there were there were two hospitals that that stuck out. Uh, one of them was a government hospital um, that that you didn't have to have insurance or anything like that to pay for. You could go in um, and and receive care, and those things are great as a safety net. Uh, there was also a religiously run hospital. Um, it was Our Lady of the Lake. It was the, the Catholic used to used to be run, I should say, by the Catholic Church. I'm pretty sure they probably have at this point now. They've modernized and have some type of private uh, company that's running it. But um, you have you have this Catholic institution and you have the government institution. Well, if you ask anybody there in uh, in town um, where you go for the best care, you go to the religious institution. And there are other things. Now you say, well, there are some places you just, you know, some people can't go to there because they don't. Listen, I get all of that. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue the, the, the necessity of government run. I'm saying that, that there, there is a certain point in which you will not eradicate, you will not eradicate um, economic disparity. The poor you will have with you always. And we have scripture galore on why you should take care of the poor, why the church should be involved in taking care of the orphans, taking care of widows, taking care of those that are down, uh, taking care of those that are imprisoned. These are mandates given by Jesus. So when Jesus says what I, I just said he says, he's not saying turn a blind eye to them. He's saying you need to help them. But you need to understand that there's, there's nothing that you can do that will eradicate economic disparity in this world. There is a greater need that they have and that the church must address as well. And this is what I talked about in our class. I think it was the first Sunday uh, that I taught this was, Jesus says, you don't, have, you don't have me with you always. Now, of course, he's talking about right then the manifestation of the man, Jesus Christ. He's like, my disciples are spending time with me. We don't fast for the bridegroom while he's here. He goes away and then you fast. And he was saying, look, we've got, they've got, there's, there are moments in your life 
when you have to take advantage of that. Now, now some people say that the church should be more of a socially aware institution. I would, I would disagree with that. I'm going to tell you why. Because I think the church, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the church exists for the mission of God. The mission of God is to seek and save that which is lost. We can definitely help people economically, and our local church does. We have a food bank. We take up special offerings. We take care of our people when they're when they're uh, in in financial crisis, uh, when they're in medical crisis, when whatever whatever's going on. We do meet the carnal needs of our of our people, but that's not why the church exists. The church exists to meet the spiritual needs of the, these people. And there are times when we come in to the house of God together corporately, and we are we are aiming. For a spiritual goal, we want to meet spiritual needs. That is the that is the, that is that is a magnitude of a higher order than their physical needs. They can they can go to heaven, and 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 have a have a financially poor existence on this earth, but and, and, and but they can also go to hell and have an abundance of 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 worldly possessions. And so our goal, as Jesus said, is to. Spend time with the Lord in His presence. Get people connected into that, into that body, and 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 then and then also help the poor anytime you want is what Jesus is saying here. And so um, I, I wanted to. Uh, I think we can stop here today. There there are so many things that I that I could get into. Um, the one question. I tell you what, let's stop today. I was going to. I'll answer the question: Was the early church socialist? Um, I, I've heard this accusation a lot, and. Um, Let's not get into it. Let's save that for another episode. Was the early church socialist? I've, I've, I've seen this kind of as a gotcha. Well, they had all things in common, Brother Chester. What is your response to that? Well, I've got a, I've got a great response. i tell you what. <laughs> You've goaded me into it, Chester, you old dog. Okay, I'll answer this question. Was the early church socialist? Did they, they sell all their possessions. They had all, all things in common. They lived together in, in community. Was they, were they socialists? Absolutely not. The church, early church was not socialist because it was done of their own free will. Socialism is charity, quote-unquote charity, uh, staring down the barrel of a gun. That's what socialism is. If you don't give, we will take it. Socialism robs people of their charitable option. Now you say, well, if the church was doing what it's supposed to do, the government hadn't, would not have to get involved. I don't think you have any data to support that. I really don't. I think, that, I think community social safety nets are way more effective than government social safety nets because there's a few reasons why. Number one, you don't have to worry about the excess going to governments. You 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 think of like the taxes that they would they would uh, exact from the populace to cover these social programs. How much of that actually gets to the hands of the people that need it? When when it's done in a social setting, a local social setting, you don't have to you don't have to pay light bills in Washington. You don't have to pass through three or four different government offices. It can get to the people that need it. I I think that's that's a better system. Also, let me tell you this: you don't have to worry about fraud as much in the social settings. Yeah, yeah, there are people that come and defraud the church. Yes, it happens. But when you live with these people, when you exist in community with these people, you know when people need it. And when, when they're just scamming the system, there's so much of that go, that goes on through the government. You know, they, they, they figure that into the budget. They know that they're going to be getting taken to the cleaner, so to speak, by people that run government scams. And when you live in close proximity with people in the church, you, you know where the needs are. You know where the needs are. You know when people need it and when people actually need a good, you know, 
good <laughs> support from the community. Like, you know what? Maybe maybe you should you should make this decision, and, and we'll help you get a job, or we'll help you do this. There there are certain features that are built into community that the government does not have, and they're not. People say, well, that's a that's a bug. You know, th- those people aren't going to get the help they need because these people. No, no, no. It's actually a feature. You need those account. You need those accountability. Uh, uh, policies or those those features uh in relationships you know where people say you know what um this this guy is really in need and this guy's just trying to hustle the entire church so and also you you deprive a person that wants to give think of it this way if if there was a if there was a family that you were connected to in the community and you were made aware of their need they needed $100 to keep their lights on. It's winter. The, the, the power was just shut off. The man lost his job. They have small children living in the house. Uh, they're not going to have heat if, they're, if their uh, energy bill, the utilities is not paid. If you had the option to give them, I don't know of any of my listeners that would not freely, if you had the money to spare, would not with an open hand meet the need of that person you would do that. I know you would. I believe in you out there. I know many of you personally. Some of you I don't know. But if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably you're probably uh, slanted toward that type of uh, charitable giving. I know you would. So how would you feel if someone, if that man came and robbed you of that hundred dollars? Not only is he robbing you of of your money that you work for, he's also robbing you with the opportunity to be charitable. And this is awful. This is this is this is how you dis- disconnect a society from the good that it's doing with its hard-earned money. Like if you you rob them, you deny them that joy of helping someone and being charitable and being a good person and being a neighbor. And you say, well, if they would just give it anyway, that you had to worry about it. I disagree. I disagree. I, I think you have a dark. I think you have a really dark uh, understanding of 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 neighbors and and charitable people. And, 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 and I think that it's almost self-fulfilling that if you treat people like that, where you take the money for them and you just give it to whoever and you don't connect a face with it, you don't connect a relationship with it, then, then you're going to get that type of relationship. You're going to get that type of society where we're not connected to one another and, and you don't care if the other man survives or not because you're like, well, they got the government. They've already got my money. And you don't want to give charitably. I think it's, I think it's a disaster in the making and we're already, we're already getting there. Okay, I did answer that question uh, against my better judgment. <laughs> but... Uh, we're going to close in this episode. Uh, thank you for listening to the end. Um, please uh, like and subscribe. Leave me a review on iTunes or whatever you're listening to it on. I would appreciate that. And we will be uh, following up some more of this later on. Thank you and God bless. You've been listening to the Kenny Chester Podcast. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. 